It's not about can we do it. It was more about how we do it. I always expected people to say no. And then when someone said yes, I was like, what? <laughs> Actually, you want to do this? <laughs> I just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other. The whole world is like, what exactly have you smoked again? This is The Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm Managing Director of capital raising law firm Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Today, I'm chatting with James Betsady, the CEO and co-founder of Kintel, a digital platform that connects subject matter experts with learners across any topic for a video learning session. You can learn anything from startup legal advice to spirituality habits, hobbies and craft and everything in between. James is a mathematics whiz, an engineer, and a data scientist. He spent over a decade in academia and business before starting Kintel. James has so much wisdom to share that we have two episodes for you. In this first episode, you'll hear how James vetted his co-founder, who also happens to be his life partner, and how he decided that a safe note was the best fundraising option for Kintel. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show, James. Thanks for having me. James, you're the co-founder and CEO of Kintel. Kintel stands for kindness and intelligence, which I just love. What's your elevator pitch for Kintel? Kintel is a platform that enables people to find an expert, book them for a video session, which could be paid or pro bono, and they can leave a rating and review afterwards after the video session. The B2C version of the platform, business-to-consumer version, is perfect for independent coaches and consultants. We also have a B2B version, business-to-business version, which is a full-stack turnkey video solution for organizations to host their alumni networks or run their mentoring programs or use it for recruitment and staff training and many other applications, really anything that involves video. And... To understand the problem that Kinta solves, I give an analogy with Zoom because that's our favorite question. Everyone asks us, uh, so is Kinta another Zoom? And the answer is yes, Kintel does have a native in-browser video conferencing as a feature, but how it's different to Zoom is that Zoom takes care of the video meeting very well. But Kintel not only does that, but also takes care of the steps before and after the video session, such as finding an expert, scheduling and rescheduling the video session. There is a payment option and there is the rating and review that follows the video session. And we also have a specific focus on knowledge sharing. We're specifically built for knowledge sharing. I give an analogy here as well. So if you think about Zoom as a professional camera, that has a lot of buttons and dials and it it comes with a very fancy tripod and you could do a lot of advanced stuff in terms of photography, then you can also think of Kintel as an iPhone that comes with a camera built in as a feature 
But then iPhone comes with a lot of other features, so many useful features such as internet access, or you can make phone calls, or you can listen to music, and so on and so forth. So camera becomes just one feature in there. So therefore, Kindle is a full-stack video solution that enables both individuals and organizations to share their professional knowledge seamlessly. James, I love hearing stories about how founders meet their co-founders and how they vet them. In your case, of course, your co-founder is your wife, Jane, which adds a different element to the decision-making process when you decide whether or not to go into business with that person. How did you and Jane go about making the decision to go into business together? It was a very long process, and I think you're right. You have to have the trust with co-founder, and there are some accelerators that they try to match you with the co-founder. And my analogy for that, it would be like a speed dating usually it doesn't go well uh, if you try to marry someone after two months because co-founding a company is like a marriage it's not something that you can do within a few months you have to think about this is going to be a good three to five years journey and we have to have full trust in each other so for us the good news is jane and i we didn't get married in two months <laughs> before getting married i think yeah we, we were dating for a few years and then we moved in for a few years and finally uh, we got married and after I started the company so initially it was me who kept telling her that yeah we should do this company and the backstory of Kintel is also an interesting one she was a full-time faculty member at MBA school of UNSW uh, AGSM and she kept telling me that instead of teaching, most of my time goes into connecting different MBA students with each other. And there is a problem here. And it's a lot of friction and it's a lot of challenges for MBAs to talk to MBAs because they need to talk to another professional that has seen it, has done it, and then they make that career change decision. And I said, well, that's a good company. Let's digitize this and build a company around it and do the coffee chat with a digital process. And it eventually led to a concept that we have to abandon the whole coffee chat instead of having the coffee, physical coffee, because that doesn't scale. It's not going to go global. It's very hard. And instead, we do the digital coffee, which is the video meetings. And you do that knowledge sharing in this way. And the story was that Jane kept talking to me, and this is when I was full-time data scientist working at Qantas, and I keep telling her, yeah, this is, this is great for a company, and we should do this, and it's, it totally is going to grow, and it's going to be very big, and there's a lot of potentials. We talked about it for a couple of years, and eventually I quit everything and decided that I don't take any job offer anymore, and I have to do this. And over that first year of company, Jane still was working full-time to support our family and make sure that have some cash. <laughs> and it was a difficult year because you have to put this in context that your husband and wife, and also, especially for Jane, it was very difficult because she had a full-time job at the university. And also, I come home and I come with all these ideas. You know why we should do this? We should do that. And what do you think about this idea? What do you think about that idea? And it could be quite draining for someone to maintain a full-time job and also support your husband and she was sort of my co-founder from day one because i depended on her to support me to throughout that first year 
And eventually I convinced her that, well, you're sort of a full-time co-founder. Why not just quit the job and come and join me? And she did. And she quit her full-time job and joined me as a co-founder full-time. That was something that didn't happen in two, three months of speed dating. It was a process that took many years to get to that point. And Canva is another Australian company that the founders are a couple. So I think it goes well. It could work really well if the husband and wife team, they have a lot of deep connections and very strong relationship. But also, I think for business to be successful, you have to have very complementary skills. For instance, in our case, we are very, very different people. I come from a tech background. Jane comes from business background. She's also an artist. She draws very beautiful drawings, whereas I, I suck at drawing and <laughs> I, I'm horrible with those sort of things. So we're very different people. And because of this, it works very well. Sometimes it's very hard to agree on something because you're so different and you see the problems from very different angles. But I think if you leverage it correctly, it could help. It could be very beneficial to the business. There are a few things in there that you touched on that I'd love to unpack. So... Usually when founders think about going into business with somebody else, they'll consult a few mentors and obviously their life partners. Who did you consult when you were thinking about whether or not Jane would be the right person to go into business with or whether it was even a good idea to go into business with your wife? The most important decision was even before starting the company, it was to whether I want to marry Jane or not. And then a few steps before that, a few years before that, it was the important decision whether I want to move in with Jane and live with her and a few steps before that whether I want to date this girl or not so is if you put all of these decisions over the years together then the decision to start the business together is not that hard but also I think because for us we're, we're quite mature type of founders we're not like college dropouts for disclosure we have both finished our phd we're not dropouts and we have seen the world we have had very high paying jobs at good roles in companies and government roles so it wasn't a very difficult decision to start a company together but i think those decisions were made way earlier the trust had been built over the years before marriage Mm. But I think the difficult part in starting up as a first-time founder is always, as a startup founder, you're, you're this naive, positive thinker that you think that, oh, this is going to be awesome, this is going to be cool, and you would think that, yeah, you, you would start and then everything will work out, <laughs> then you start, everything <laughs> falls apart, nothing works. And <laughs> Eternal yeah, optimist. Yeah, but I think it is important, like... A startup founders, they're a unique species of humans or homo sapiens that they have to have this tremendous positivity so that they can't change the world. Because if you don't have that level of positivity, uh, you're going to give up after three months or six months or a year because it's, it's a lot of hard work and you have to have that positivity to think that this is going to work and I want this vision to come true and you, you see it and the whole world doesn't see it and that's a challenge. And I think as a husband and wife duo, the advantage you have is that you have access to each other 24-7. <laughs> mm. And the same advantage could become your disadvantage 
because you have access to each other 24-7, which means that you're going to talk about business in the breakfast and at lunch, at dinner, at night and on the weekends. And you go to your social gatherings and the friends, they want to be nice to you and say, so how's the business going? And you're like, man, I was hoping not to talk about this uh, today. <laughs> this yeah. is my break. <laughs> so it, it could be really challenging. So like another example is like if your co-founder is not your husband or your wife, when you go home, you're like, okay, I, I can take a two-hour break from all this and I can spend time with my family. Whereas as a husband and wife team, you go home and you're like, and we're still talking about work. So therefore, you have to come up with rules for your mental health. And what we have done is we have sacred times, sacred places that we don't talk about work. To have that break from work, because as a startup founder, it's nonstop. You can just go on 24-7 and you still are behind. So you have to have this mental health practice that I'm going to switch off uh, because it would make you more productive in the long run. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You, you're not going to build the next Google in three months' time. You're going to build it in 10 years' time. So you have to have this mindset of taking care of your mental health. I love that. Sacred time and sacred place. My partner and I both own our own businesses, and we find it really difficult to shut off and not talk about our respective businesses what does your sacred time and sacred space look like we try to put sundays as the day that we don't work it's very hard because you know like we have one of our cherished advisors um, who was a former managing partner at pwc and ibm so really very high ranking executive and i was asking him like Back in your days, like when you were executive, how was the life like as an executive? And he was like, oh, it was a lot easier back then uh, because there was no email <laughs> or because I just go to a hotel and then nobody know my number and they can't reach me <laughs> and I can't switch off. Whereas these days being an executive is really hard because you're on 24-7. So Another thing that I do to take care of my mental health is that I have disabled all the notifications on all devices. So there is no notification. So the only way that I can use technology is that I go to my phone and open a Slack consciously that because I want to open a Slack or WhatsApp or whatever. So there has to be a conscious effort in creating those sacred approaches. So Sunday, no work bedroom no work we try not to talk about work when we hit the bed it's very hard again because maybe for instance you say what was your favorite moment and it's very hard not to say oh when we closed that customer <laughs> and then you're like oh man again we're talking about work <laughs> yeah so it's very challenging but i think with your life partner it's possible it is doable, but it takes conscious effort. And James, do you use different tools to work on your working relationship versus your personal relationship? Yeah, that's a good one. I tried for a while to do this, but it's very hard because especially with COVID, I think it's really difficult to draw that line. I was hoping WhatsApp would stay a personal tool for me, but 
then we also have some investors and customers that they reach out to us on WhatsApp. So really, it's very hard in 21st century to draw that line. But I think one of the ways that I try to separate the work from home, especially like I think to draw that boundary between work and home, I change my clothes. <laughs> so I put on my Kindle uniforms. I have a Kindle t-shirt and a Kindle hoodie and I put it on in the morning and at night when I want to switch off, I change my clothes. And then from that point onward, I don't look at work. Being a CEO, you're always on. You think you're not working about work, but your brain in the background is solving a problem. And in the morning you wake up and it's like, oh yeah, we should do this. Yeah, I love that. Changing your clothes. I, full disclosure and admission, I have work tracksuit pants and home tracksuit pants for COVID. <laughs> and I change out of those <laughs> to change my mindset. <laughs> I think it, when you go to office, you are sort of switching that mode and your mind has some time to adjust and say that, all right, so now I'm no longer in my relaxed environment and I'm going to work. But with COVID, it is a big challenge because you're at home, it's the same environment. How do you differentiate it to? That's the way that you can differentiate it. Or another thing is I, I try to clear my inbox at the end of the day. A snooze function of Gmail is one of my most favorite features in the world. I die without that feature. It's just, I will be swamped under the emails. And I try to clear it at the end of the day. So then either I get to it today or it goes to another day or weekend. Then I know that from now on, <laughs> nobody can reach to me. That's it. I'm not going to check any of those tools and all the notifications are off. This is how there can be a little bit of a space for recovering. James, I'd like to talk now about your cap raising journey with Kintel. You've raised a significant amount of money using SAFEs, which is Simple Agreements for Future Equity. Are you able to share with our audience how much money you've raised? Let's say it's in seven figures, but not exact amount. Yeah. Yeah. Why did you choose SAFEs instead of, say, traditional equity or debt? There are a lot of reasons why SAFE is better than those. I give a few analogies of each of these with a real-world example. Think about uh, fundraising as a goal of getting from A to B, because with those funds, you would fund your company and the fund would enable your company to achieve a lot more things with those money. Now, going from A to B can be achieved with a bicycle. So I say debt financing is something like a bicycle in the startup stage. Like There is also debt financing in the much later stage that you can go and raise, uh, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars in debt financing, which is no longer it's a bicycle. But in the early days, you can max out your credit card and do those things, uh, which would be debt financing. But bicycle is quite dangerous for initial stage of a company. You could hit a bus and you break your neck and you die. And also it's very slow. Because with debt financing, you can't raise much. That That's the challenges with that. Because you have to take into account that as a startup, you don't have the traction. You don't have those metrics. Nobody believes you, right? Of course, you as the founder, you believe that vision and you're willing to quit your job and everything to do it. But the whole world is like, what exactly have you smoked again? <laughs> and they don't believe you. Then the next option is to go on a convertible note which is sitting somewhere between equity and debt. And 
I can call that a motorbike. So it goes a lot faster. It has some better security measures there. You can have a helmet that protects your head in case you hit a bus. And still, it's a two-wheel vehicle, so you could still lose your balance and uh, fall off and uh, have serious injury. And the challenge with convertible note is that essentially it's debt. And at the time of traction, when there is a price round, the investor could choose to collect that debt or convert it into equity and shares in the company. And then there is some interest rate that would uh, accrue because of the time that that investor has waited for that traction to happen. And also you may give some discount to the investor. Now, the problem with the motorbike that could get really, really scary and you could go and hit a car from the back and break your neck again is you calculate that discount incorrectly. So in your head, you're like, oh, I'm giving 10%, 20%. 10% is a small number, it's okay, not a big deal. And then when the price round comes, you're like, ooh, I have already given away 50% of the company for like half a mil. You have to be very careful with that approach. Now we go to the next stage, which is a safe or simple agreement for future equity that I call this a Tesla compared to a motorbike. That it doesn't have a combustion engine it just runs on a battery and some motors. So it is a lot simpler uh, in terms of the design and safer because it has four wheels instead of two wheels. And the way that I see that convertible note versus safe, safe is safer is because safe is an equity partnership. So that investor, you're not in debt as a company, you're partnering with someone. If you win, they win. If you lose, they lose. So they agree that this is a partnership. And in this regard, it's a better vehicle. It has similar provisions as convertible notes. So it's like a evolution of these vehicles over time. They initially, like there is a good book, the story of the shoe dog, maybe. I forgot the exact name, the story of Nike. Nike. Mm-hmm. And when you read that story, you see that, man, back then there was no venture capital, there was no equity, and it was tough. And the accountant was telling him that, well, like, debt is debt, and you can't raise more than this. And these days it's a lot easier. So things have moved along a very far distance since those days. So there is the bicycle, there is the motorbike, there is the Tesla, and then There is the government grants, which is another analogy for government grants. You can think of it as hitchhiking on a highway. You can get on a car and it's nice and it's free ride and there is no expectation of returning the money or they don't ask for equity stake in your company. It's just a free ride. But the problem with government grants is that you may be hanging there for three hours and no car passes by or a lot of cars passes by and they don't pick you up. So that's the challenge with government grants. And then you also have price round, which is the ultimate mechanism for fundraising. But the challenge with the price round is that it's a shuttle bus. It has its own timetable, which means that you can't just go and raise a price round whenever you want. You have to make sure the timing is right. And then there is another challenge with shuttle bus that you need to get a whole lot of people on it before the bus starts moving. They wouldn't move the bus just because you came on the bus and say, let's go. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're not going to move. Let's negotiate all these 256 terms. <laughs> and 
it could be very dangerous again. It's very safe, right? It has four wheels. It's not like the bicycle or motorbike. It has a door that closes and you won't fall off the window or anything. There is a seatbelt and all of that. But the danger is that you may lose time. Maybe you have an important meeting. You need to get there from A to B, but then the bus doesn't move because not all the people have come on board, which is all those investors that have to agree on the valuation of the company. You have to say that you as a founder, of course, you'd like to have a $100 million company in the early days when it's just a pen and paper and a business plan, and the investors would laugh you out of the room. Then that negotiation on the valuation will become a drain on your time and resources, and that's the challenge with the price round. Now, the wisdom in SAFE is it's a middle ground. It's not a debt. It's not a price round. It's somewhere in between. So it's equity, but then on some mechanism that is giving that flexibility to the founder to say that, I know we're not a $100 million company, and I know that we're not a $10 million company, but let's say if the valuation of the company right now, we cap it at $10 million and you give us $100,000, then you're guaranteed 1% in this company. Now, if turns out the valuation of the company became $100 million, $100,000 in $100 million would just become 10 basis points, but you still get your 1% guarantee. So we don't dilute you because the valuation grew. And if the valuation turned out to be $5 million, you get 2% instead of 1%. So it's a good deal. And the investor would know that their downside is covered. And the upside is that the company has reached a better valuation. So good for the founder and good for me because my investment has grown. That's the wisdom in SAFE. And then there is the wisdom for protection for the investor where the founder can't go and raise too much SAFE money because they're diluting themselves. That's the mechanism that is in there. So it is a good middle ground for both parties. Did you consider doing traditional equity round or was the decision deliberate always to go out with SAFE? No, it, the reason we went with SAFE was because we were conscious of time. So that's one thing. Second is traditional rounds. There was a point in the negotiation with the round that we did last year that one of the investors proposed that why not we just do a conventional round. And the consideration was that if we want to do that at that point in time, it, we also had to convert all the previous saves. So you have to keep in mind that just for the knowledge of the, again, first-time founders that don't know what safe, what's convertible note. The way that safe works is that the company is not issuing anyone shares. It's a promise. It's a simple agreement for future equity that in the future, we are going to issue all these shares. And at the moment, we don't issue any shares. Now, the advantage of this is that you can close each investor individually, separately, and move on very quickly. Whereas with the price round, you have to agree on the valuation with all of those investors that are going to come on the bus to get the round closed and move on. And whenever that price round happens, all of these past saves have to convert and each of those investors will get their shares. So that's the challenge. So therefore, I recommend doing a traditional round, a price round, when number one, the founders are not in a time poor situation, the timing should be right. And two, the amount of raise should be significant enough to cover the costs of doing a price round. 
These are the two things. Yeah. Mm. And I love the analogies. <laughs> <laughs> James, the safe is a US document. Were the investors that took up the safe with you, were they Australian investors? Or... Yes. Yes. Right. So the way that we do it is I add this as well. So safe is a fancy word. So as I said, like safe is like Tesla and everyone would like to say that, oh, we're cool too. And they call their convertible notes a safe. When I say safe, I mean the version of the safe that is on the website of Y Combinator, YC, which is a famous accelerator in US. The graduates of that accelerator are Airbnb, Dropbox, Stripe. So they invented this vehicle out of the wisdom of seeing so many companies, so many great companies that they were stuck for the shuttle bus. They couldn't get the bus going and they needed money fast, very quickly. And then over time, YC observed that actually these founders love it so much that they keep raising money on safe. And that's why they initially, the version that they gave out was a pre-money safe. And then later they modified the document and calculations to make it a post-money safe. And the difference is on a pre-money safe, the investors were being diluted, whereas in post-money safe, it's only the founder that is being diluted. So that's the wisdom in there. So the protection mechanism is there for, for the investors that they know if I'm giving money to this founder and this founder goes around and raise another safe, I'm not being diluted. My percentage is protected. The founder is diluting from their own shares. And how did you find the reaction from the prospective investors in terms of choosing to use a safe? Were they comfortable with it or did you have to educate them? Oh, yeah, the education definitely was there. The original document that is on the YC website is referring to some American terms, which is a little bit of American language, such as stock, capital stock, and those sort of terms. We have to change those words and we highlight them in clearly in yellow for, for our investors to know exactly what has been changed compared to the original version. And in this way, we're very transparent that we're not doing anything dodgy here. That answers your second question, which they know that, okay, so this is a standard approach. This is a standard document. We're not coming up with anything dodgy. I have seen a lot of dodgy safes as well. Mm. Uh, some of these accelerators, they come up with their own document, which has nothing to do with YC safe, and they just call it safe because safe is cool. <laughs> they would like to call themselves a Tesla, whereas in reality, they're a horrible diesel engine that is very pollutant and is nowhere close to being a Tesla as a green car. James, thank you so much for sharing your story with me today. It's been very informative and very inspiring talking with you. Thanks for having me on the show. You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you behind the scenes into founder stories about capital raising. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru, a product from the expert team at Metis Law. Create kick-ass capital raising term sheets with Termsheet Guru and learn how to negotiate term sheets with confidence. To find out more, head to the website termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mylin Dang, and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into a founder's capital raising story. Hold up. 